what a, an emotional morning. Um, I don't know where you guys are at, but I'm like, oh, there's stuff that we've been celebrating and giving thanks to God for, and that's been awesome, a baptism, that's cool. Saying goodbye to people that we love and know deeply, and we're going to miss them. Yeah, the sadness of this loss, uh, this Clarkson student, yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult. It's in days like this, I guess, where I have to remind myself, and I think maybe we all have to remind ourselves that God's somehow still at work, still somehow at work, and um, even when we don't see it, we don't understand it, God's still at work. Some of us have lived long enough. We have a lot of stories of, even in difficult times, we have lots of stories of God's faithfulness and his goodness uh, to us, and we can testify to that. We can testify ways that we've seen God's faithfulness, his goodness, in ways that we've not deserved, right? In ways that we don't fully understand, like, I don't know why I received this blessing, or in ways that we couldn't have imagined. I could not have imagined that this uh, would be my lot, that God would have blessed me in this way. And the fun thing is that the longer we live, the more stories we collect, of God's goodness and his faithfulness and his kindness. Isn't this true? Yeah, that's the, that's the advantage of getting old, <laughs> is you, you collect more stories of God's goodness and his faithfulness, of his grace, his mercy, and his love. So long time ago when I was a college student, serving as the chapter president of University Christian Fellowship, I was um, privileged to see lots of ways that God was at work on the campuses at the time, and it was, it was a blast. I just thoroughly enjoyed my time as a student uh, involved with university. As a student leader, of course, I wanted to be involved in helping to lead other students toward God. And I was young in my faith, but it just seemed obvious to me that if I wanted to know what God was, going, what God was doing in the present and what God wanted to do in the future, that I probably should have learned a little bit about what he had been doing in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, uh, I don't exactly know how it all happened, but I would meet twice a week in the college archive room on the second floor with, uh, yeah, with another student, and she and I would dig through newspaper articles and yearbooks and just whatever we could find that would suggest to us that God was active in that year, and then in that year, and then it, we just kept going back. And, uh, you know, eventually I graduated also, so I ran out of time, but we were able to trace God's activity on these campuses to 110 years ago from now, 110 years ago, God's faithfulness to these college campuses. So I don't know, when I, like, when I think about another year of doing campus ministry, I'm pretty confident God's going to remain faithful. He has for at least the last 110, so why would he stop now? So that brings a lot of encouragement to me. I think it's, I think it's helpful, I think it's healthy to remind ourselves that our time on earth is actually very short compared to the span of God's his, history with his image-bearing people. Do I need to remind you of that reality? Our time here is quite short compared to the long span of God's activity uh, with people. I also think it's wise for us to learn as much as we can about the history of God's interaction with our 
ancestors as a way of learning how we are to live today so that we can plan for tomorrow with greater wisdom. Yeah, so learning this history can be an awesome way of collecting, I think, even more stories of God's goodness and his faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, and his love. And not just hoard them for ourselves, but there are more stories that we get to share with others. And that's beautiful. All right, so it's with this in mind that we are launching a new sermon series focused on a few books in the Old Testament commonly known as either the 12 prophets or the minor prophets. And some of you are familiar with these. The minor prophets. When I first heard the term, I thought, oh, those are probably insignificant. Don't need to waste my time with the minor prophets. I want to go for the major prophets. We, most of us know the word minor, of course, just uh, is an indication that they're shorter. You know, like maybe three, four, maybe nine chapters. They're shorter compared to like Ezekiel or Jeremiah or as a, the major prophet. So it's just a reference to their length, not to their significance. So when you actually do get up the courage to read the minor prophets, which I hope you all do, you're going to discover that there, it's not particularly easy reading. There are some passages in scripture where, yay, I love this. It's all about love and God is good. And, you know, but you read the minor prophets, whoa. Whoa, it's just all I can say. It's, it's difficult reading. It's hard reading. And you're, you're not quite sure what on earth is going on and who's, who's this person and who's angry at this person and what is this metaphor. You, it's hard to understand. It can also feel heavy and depressing and irrelevant. And so if you're already having a bad day, you know, like picking up the minor prophets isn't going to necessarily cheer you up. So, yeah, you just got to brace yourself. This is the word of God. God speaks to me somehow through this. Again, these books are, my little uh, survey, I guess, is that these books are relatively unread. Most, a lot of people actually have not read the Minor Prophets. Uh, and again, you know, sometimes we avoid them. But here's the point. Missing out on this history of God's activity, actually, may deprive us of some important lessons that we need to know as we seek today to live out our faith in obedience to God today and as we think and pray and plan for the future. So, yep, there, I think you saw, right, the title? Uh, yep, Major Prophet from the Minor Prophets. There you go. <laughs> we work hard on our titles. <laughs> okay, now... Um, to better understand Amos. So we're going to start with Amos. Uh, we have three uh, minor prophets that we're going to be hitting the next couple of months. We're just going to start with Amos. It's uh, to better understand this book and actually all of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. It really is important, I think, to remind ourselves of what is most important as we seek to live out our faith in obedience to God. And I say this because it's easy to get lost in the weeds. So I'm just going to like try to remind us of what is most important as we are seeking to live out our faith in obedience to God um, as we prepare to dive into Amos. Okay, I would be surprised if anybody here could actually recite all 613 of the Old Testament laws. I'd be surprised. Now, I know you folks online could do it. 
with your eyes closed and upside down and drinking water and whatever else. But for the rest of us here, anybody want to try it? 613, okay. I also think that many of us here, not online, you guys are awesome, but you here, I think probably many of you would actually struggle even naming the Ten Commandments. Mm, Just saying. I think. I don't know if that's true. But I bet, however, that almost all of you could at least paraphrase, paraphrase the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave in response to being questioned by an expert of the law. What are the greatest commandments? Some of you are breaking out in a song. I love this. Yes, right. To love God and to love others. Ding, ding. Yeah, that's it. Jesus said it this way. The most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments. There is no commandment greater than these. That's in Mark. Jesus began his answer about the greatest command with the great Jewish prayer called the Shema. The expert could probably have predicted that Jesus would answer the question beginning with the Shema. It's like, duh, right? To an expert in the law. Of course, that's the greatest command. Yes, well done, Jesus. You know the Bible very well, the expert would say to the one who wrote it. Of course, this is from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. But when Jesus adds, oh, and love your neighbor as yourself, it'd be like, what? What did you just say? He wouldn't have expected that. And love your neighbor as yourself. I think that this probably caught this Jewish lawyer off guard. By including the command from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus was making it clear that our love for God is to be expressed upwardly and outwardly. Upwardly and outwardly. Upwardly in our worship as we devote our whole self, holy and pleasing to him. Romans 12. And then outwardly in our witness to others as we demonstrate his justice and his generosity in word and in action with those that are in need. Upward and outward. This upward and outward call to love was at the heart of the Ten Commandments. You can see it right there in the Ten Commandments. And all of the other commands that that follow, it's at the heart of them. But sadly, obeying them has not always been at the heart of God's people. It's not going to shock most of you here. Remembering God's covenantal law with his people to love is important to keep in mind as we get into the book of Amos, my friends. So remember this. Understanding its historical context, I think is also important to keep in mind because context, in my opinion, context is key to understanding and understanding is, of course, key to application. 
So it's really important to pay attention to the context. Okay, I only have a little bit of time to do this. Uh, we're going to give a very brief overview of the context of Amos. Here we go. There it is. I hope some of you can see this. All right, this is a timeline of when, we, when the Old Testament books were written. And yeah, so from the left to the right, you've got the timeline beginning with 2300 BC. We don't exactly have an exact time for when things all began, but um, it was before 2300 BC. We can say with a lot of confidence, you can see uh, Genesis was recorded back it's probably around in that time, and then Exodus, and then the other books that were penned were written around maybe around 1500 BC, Judges Ruth, and then you got a bunch of stuff going on around, um, around 1000 BC, uh, about 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. And then you have more historical books that were written around 9, 700. Um, and, um, and then you have um, Ezra, Nehemiah were written um, after, after uh, the Babylonian exile and, and, and the return back to um, the southern kingdom, which we're going to learn about. But now down here, you see have... The prophets, and that's what we're going to be focusing on, the prophets, specifically the minor prophets. And so it says, see next chart. So let's take a look at the next chart. There we go. And, and it's because the minor, the prophets in general, and including the minor prophets, were all written within a relatively short period of time. Uh, the years of 800 B.C. to about 400 B.C. So during that 400 time period, and they're all written um, for different reasons, different contexts, but, um, and now you can see Amos over there around 750 B.C., around, uh, maybe Joel was written around that time, and Joel, Joel uh, Micah, Hosea, uh, and Isaiah, actually, around that time period. Um, this will be on the test, so I hope you have memorized it all. Okay. And, oh, go back to that slide, if you don't mind. I just want to point out one other thing, and that is, so this is back during the time of the, the United Kingdom. Uh, most of you know this, but some don't, that, that Israel uh, was united under Saul and David and Solomon, and then some bad things happened, and it was divided into two kingdoms, the Northern Kingdom, uh, which doesn't last as long. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And then the Southern Kingdom, that lasts a little bit longer, and then there's some folks that begin to return back to Jerusalem. So northern, southern, I broke it. <laughs> there we go. Don't touch the screen, kids. Okay, there you go. Okay, so let me, let me refer to some work that I found incredibly helpful by Dr. Don, uh, Tom McComiskey. John, do you know Dr. John uh, Tom McComiskey? Um, yeah, okay, there you go. He's a former professor um, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where John went to school. He specialized in Old Testament and Semitic languages, and he's done extensive work on the history of um, the historical context of the book of Amos and some other um, prophetic books. So lots that I could bore you with, I'm not going to. I'm going to give you a very brief summary of um, some of his work to help us to understand the context of Amos. Are we okay with that? It's very brief. Okay. For most of the 8th century, that's, those are the years 700 B.C. to 800 B.C., that 100-year period, most of the 8th century B.C., including at the time of Amos' Amos's writing, both the southern kingdom and, which was called Judah, 
and the northern kingdom, which preserved the name Israel, were prospering financially. These were good years. These were like golden years for these two kingdoms uh, during the 8th century. But as their economic prosperity and their military strength increased, they were lulled into a false sense of security. Imagine that. (laughs) Now, meanwhile, moral decline, decline among these people, God's people, was growing. And like cancer, it was spreading fast. And, and it was undermining um, the covenant that they had established with God or God had established with them at Mount Sinai. The covenant that promised loyalty to God. God, we will be your people and we'll serve you, whatever. They were turning their back to, to him. And as a result, also, they were turning their back to helping people desperately in need of their help. So denying them of justice and mercy and grace. Denying them love. So the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, to whom God sent Amos as a prophet, uh, they grew increasingly divided as the rich grew richer and the poor, yeah, it's classic, right? It happens all the time. The wealthy saw an opportunity to increase their wealth by not just neglecting the poor, but by actually taking advantage of their vulnerability. The concern for economic justice that was inherent in the very structure of God's law was being ignored. Yet God would not ignore the cries for justice from those who were being oppressed. And so he sent, as an act of mercy, he sent Amos uh, to warn the oppressors through accusations, uh, through calls to repentance, and then there's a warning uh, referred to in this book and in other prophetic books in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord or the day of judgment, which comes. But there, there's these warnings of the day of the Lord if they refuse to listen. With a reminder, again, what's the greatest command? That's all you have to know, right? That's going to be on the test. Um, yeah, we got to remember that as we, as we get into uh, these, these prophetic books. To love him, to love their name, and to know some of the context of Amos we now know. So now we are ready um, for our major prophet from this minor prophet. I have asked one of our graduating seniors to come up, and he's going to read, pray for him, the first chapter of Amos and the first five verses of chapter two. This is Andrew Kiffer. Amos, the, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel wither. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she thrust Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kur, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod. 
and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my head against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent. Because she sold whole communities captive to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Taman that will consume the fortresses of Borzo. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent. Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king, I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriath. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Thanks be to God. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Andrew. All right, we're going to put up uh, this map again. And so the lavender, uh, whatever, is the northern, and the green is uh, Judah, the southern. So you got the northern and the southern. So in the first verse, um, if you have a Bible, it might be helpful to open it up or grab one from the seat in front of you and find Amos. There's help in the um, beginning um, if you need to find it. It might be helpful, but um, you don't need to. In the first verse of uh, Amos chapter 1, we're introduced to Amos as a herdsman who was working near Tekoa, which is, if you, you can find it on a map, not this one, but on a more detailed map, it's about 10 miles south of um, Jerusalem. Uh, where, where this is located, even closer to Bethlehem. And it's in the southern kingdom. So again, Amos was from the south, and, and he's sent to go up to the north. We're told that the words in this book are God's words. We see in verse 1, they're God's words based on uh, what he was seeing going on in the northern kingdom of Israel. We know nothing, at least I know nothing about the earthquake um, so it references an earthquake. Nobody really knows what was going on with that earthquake. But thankfully, um, Amos decides to record who was king, and that helps us then to place this in historical context. Oh, okay, we don't know anything about the earthquake, but we do know something about these kings when they ruled and reigned. And so that helps us. That's one of the clues um, to help us to know that this book was written around 750 B.C., in which... I was a math major, so this doesn't really mean a whole lot to me, but maybe to some of you, it's when Homer was writing the Iliad. Oh, see? Some of you literature people, oh, that's interesting. Now you won't, so that's, that's the time frame, around 750 B.C. That means very little to me. I just want to know what mathematical formulas they were working on, but. <clears throat> All right, verse <laughs> two 
introduces the main character of Amos's vision throughout. It's the Lord, the Lord. The one who had established a holy covenant with his people during the time of Moses and had made Jerusalem his dwelling place during the reign of King David before the kingdom split into two. Now, the poetic language in this verse make it, makes it really clear in verse 2 that God was angry at Israel and that his judgment against them was going to be complete. Most of us, when we read verse 2, we can at least get that. God's angry and there's going to be judgment and it's going to be complete. Um, there's a reference to uh, some geography in verse 2 and it's just referring to the lowest pasture land all the way up to the highest peak, uh, in this case, Mount Carmel, which is in the north. So the lowest, which is down the south, the pasture lands, closer to where Amos is from, all the way up to the northern part, Mount Carmel. It's going to be complete. No, no place in, in uh, the northern kingdom is going to escape God's judgment if they don't repent. Verse 3. Verse 3, my friends. <laughs> it's where the accusations begin. And I'm sure that you noticed there was something going on. For three sins of, and then it names a place or a city or whatever. Um, and then it says, even for four, I will not relent. And for some of us, it's like, what? Is it three or is it four? You know, which one is it? For three, four, and, you know. So in any event, this is just a Hebrew writer using uh, a poetic expression of speech, essentially to say... Um, it's not limited to three. It actually is more than three. It's actually more than you can count. It's, it's a poetic way of saying it's a lot, actually. Jesus did this a little bit like, remember, how many times should I forgive? Was it seven or 70? No, 70 times seven. That doesn't mean that once we have forgiven a person 490 times that we're dismissed, you know, right? The point is, no, you just keep on forgiving. There's no end. It, it's, it, it, this would have been familiar poetic language. So again, for three sins, for four, oh, there's a long list here. That's the point. Is that good? Okay. Now, because I don't want to tempt your upper limit to be able to forgive me, uh, I am not going to take the time to explain the details of each accusation in this section. Is that okay with you? Harold, is that, are you okay with that? All right, Harold says it's okay, so I'm not going to take the time to go into detail, uh, but some of you will want to, and uh, there's a lot of specific details um, there can be some, you know, confusing. All I'm saying is that if you want to dive into it, there's great material available to you, and it can help you to understand uh, the specific meanings behind the accusation. However, for our purposes, I'm preaching, trying not to teach. For our purposes, what should be quite clear, even with a cursory reading of chapter 1, is that um, God is upset with the way that people are treating people, right? That's, that's really all you need. If you see that, you see it. God is upset with the pe way that people are treating 
people. So what's a bit surprising, however, when you dive into it, is that the first group of people found guilty of sin, it's not Israel, as you would expect. Like Amos raises up, God raises up Amos to go to Israel, and yet the list doesn't begin with the people of the, in the northern kingdom. Rather, the list begins with uh, these pagan nations, actually, that are surrounding both the, Jew, uh, the southern and the northern uh, kingdom. So it, it mentions these places. It's all around. Uh, we might get a, yeah, you can go ahead and put up the map with the circles, the next one. Yeah, there we go. So uh, it's too hard to see here, but if you begin to connect the dots of the towns that are mentioned, you sort of get this circle thing going around the southern and the northern kingdom. You get Damascus in the upper right, and then you end up with Gaza, and then Tyre, and then Edom, and then Amman, and then Moab. You end up with Moab. And it's forming this, what does this look like to you? Yeah, okay, some people see like a bullseye. It's interesting. So, so in any event, uh, the list is, is really, what God is doing is he's encircling these two kingdoms. The point seems to be clear, I think, anyway, that no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, God cares deeply about how people treat people, and that it's never acceptable to him for anyone to mistreat anyone for any reason. So the warning is clear. If you do mistreat people, be prepared for divine judgment is, is a takeaway. Okay, so as the people in Israel heard God's accusation being lodged against their enemies out there, um, their reaction might have been, can you imagine? Like, yeah, you get them, God. It's about time judgment is coming. Finally, we're going to get some justice here. I can, you can just imagine Right, the, the people in the northern kingdom, as Amos is delivering this message, yeah, Damascus, you rotten people, yeah, you people from Moab, blah 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 blah, you know, right? Yeah, you just imagine them sort of celebrating this uh, this judgment. There's something human, I think, about being able to see problems in others and being satisfied when they finally get their justice. Meanwhile, we're oftentimes too oblivious to our own issues, our own problems, and the ways in which we contribute, right? Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? So if the people of the northern kingdom were celebrating God's judgment on their neighbors, the party did not last long. For the circle that God had drawn around them was about to be tightened like a lasso. And it was going to be tightened with God's accusation now against them. And we see this in chapter 2. Um, Andrew read it. Verses 4 and 5. God now begins to address his own people. The southern kingdom now first. Judah. And, and again, this is where Amos is from. You may have noticed, if you were reading along, you may have noticed that the accusations against Judah is significantly different than the accusation against the six prior pagan nations that were mentioned. You can look at that later if you'd like to, uh, but I'll just help you to maybe see this a little more clearly. 
This is because, right, the people of Judah, we have to remember that they had a very different kind of relationship with God than the people from the other nations. God's complaint against Judah was that there was of their wholesale rejection of the covenant between him and them. They were just turning their back on this promise that they had made. The pagans didn't make any promises to God, but the people of Judah had. And God had made some promises to them. And the people were just spitting God you know, in his face. So they were not only disregarding the law that God had given them, but they were turning their back on him in pursuit of other gods, or so-called gods. To them, to these people, God said, we read it, that he was going to send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. And we know from history that this, this judgment uh, occurred in a, in a particular year, 587 B.C., when the Babylonians came in and just wiped out uh, the city of Jerusalem and, and, uh, and destroyed that kingdom for a bit. The judgment against the northern kingdom, however, uh, and Aaron's going to have the joy of getting into this in two weeks after Mother's Day. We're not going to do this on Mother's Day. Uh, so we're going to skip Mother's Day, and, and Aaron's going to dive into uh, uh, the judgment against the northern kingdom. The judgment against them was far more swift than it was for the southern kingdom. It happened within 30 years of Amos's prophecy. It was very swift. The Assyrians um, invaded uh, Israel, besieged its capital city. It took a little while, but finally they surrendered. And this signaled, actually, the end of the northern kingdom forever. That was it. Boom. Bam. Now, all right, so I've reached the end of my text. And it's uh, almost time. And so I could say, well, on that cheery note, go home. <laughs> Have a great afternoon. Be blessed. Uh, I could do that. But here's the reason why I can't. Because as I was praying and preparing for this message, I just felt like there was three things that I was to encourage you with. Um, and so I'm going to give you these three. And um, I believe that somebody here needs to hear at least one of these three. Because I think that these are words of encouragement. So we're out of Amos. First, as a follower of Jesus Christ, God has chosen and called you to speak and to act on his behalf. He's chosen you. He's called you to speak and to act on his behalf. Let me just remind you. Amos. Amos was a simple shepherd. (laughs) That's all he was. Going about his business, tending sheep, when he received the message from God. We're going to see this when we get into Amos a little bit more. But in Acts 7, I'm just going to, in Amos 7, he describes in some detail what happened when God called him. And, and his reaction was this. I was neither, this is uh, Amos chapter 7, 14 and 15. I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I was nobody special. I was simply a shepherd. Oh, and I took time to care for a sycamore fig trees, whatever that means. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go, prophesy to my people. Prophesy to my people, the people of Israel. A common pattern throughout the Bible, and you see it here, is that God chooses and calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things on his behalf. Some of you need to know 
that God has given you your life, the only life that you have, and the one that's super unique, he's given you this life to do something that only you can do for him and for his glory. If you have believed the lie that God can't do something amazing with your life because you're, I'm just a teacher, or I'm just a nurse, I'm just a farmer, no offense, Ben, or I'm just a small business owner, no offense, Ben, or I'm just an accountant, or a doctor, or a student, or a pastor, or a contractor, or an IT guy, or a secretary, or I'm just a mom, I'm just a dad, I'm just a nobody. Right? If you believed that lie, that's exactly what it is. It's a lie. It's a lie. It would be like Amos sidelining himself just because he was a shepherd. Oh, God, you got the wrong guy. My dad's not even a prophet. Don't disqualify the person that God has qualified to speak and to act on his behalf. That's the word that God said. Don't, church. Don't, Glenn. Don't, my friends, disqualify the person that God has qualified to speak and to act on his behalf. God has chosen and called you to represent him with your words and actions, and don't you dare believe otherwise. Amen? Okay, that's number one. That's number one. That's good. Number two, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has empowered and equipped you with everything you need to obey him. Believe it. Remember the slide Aaron put up last week, I I think I have it, showing you the 25 ways in which the Holy Spirit interacts with us as believers. The Holy Spirit, he helps us, he instructs us, he guides us, he comforts us, he strengthens us, he gives us supernatural abilities and divine power, and so much more as we seek to obey him. When Aaron was going over that list last week, I couldn't help but to stand in. I wanted to give a standing ovation to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Anybody else excited? That is glorious what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. When God called Amos to go to Israel with his warning, God gave him everything he needed. God gave him his words and said, to speak my words, to speak my words. When you step out by faith and obedience, he will provide you with everything you need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get specific here because I know some of you. Some of you have been praying for more boldness to share your faith in Christ with others. But surprise, surprise, you're still lacking courage. I'm going to tell you why you're still lacking courage. God will give you what you need when you need it. The reason why you're still lacking courage is because you're not sharing your faith. It's when you share your faith, that's when God will give you the courage to say what needs to be said. So you trust God to be there when you need him. You don't wait, you trust him, and you take that step of faith. That's probably all I need to say there. Third, as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, our lives are to be a demonstration of his love for all people. So we are called, we're chosen, we're called, we've been equipped, we've been empowered, and now as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, our lives are to be a demonstration of his love for all people. The sin repeatedly called out in Amos is the sin of total disregard for human life. 
And God's people were just as guilty of this as were the surrounding other nations. As Christians, redeemed by the blood of Christ, we cannot allow our opinions and treatment of others to be shaped by our political, our national, or our, even our personal views. No matter who it is that you're looking at, no matter who it is you're talking to, no matter who it is you're talking about, what's true about them is that they have also been made in the same image of God that you have been, that they are just as loved by God as you are, and that they are just in as much need for his grace, mercy, and truth as you and I are. Is that true? It's absolutely true. Amos could have refused to be God's spokesperson. Uh, I don't like those northern people, right? But he didn't. Rather, he saw this as an opportunity to demonstrate God's love, first to the pagan nations and then to his northern brothers and sisters in faith by giving them an opportunity to repent and return to their covenant with God to serve and to respect one another, to do justice on behalf of the needy, and to love their neighbors as themselves. Amos said, yes, I will do this. I'm going to put my prejudices aside, and I'm going to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott once said, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. It is true that we never lock eyes on someone who God doesn't love and for whom Jesus did not already die on the cross. We're reminded of this. God is the one who demonstrated his love. And all we get to do is emulate him, copy his example. God demonstrates his own love for every person the Apostle Paul wrote that while we were still sinners... Christ died for all. As those of us who have been shown and received his forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we get to likewise demonstrate his love for all people by the way we lay down our lives for them. Friends, the book of Amos, it's admittedly hard to read and it's difficult to understand, but its message is worth our attention. There's... There's major profit from this minor prophet. We can be encouraged by the faith and obedience of Amos. That's worth being encouraged by. If you're struggling with having to do something hard this week, Amos said yes, and so can we. We can be encouraged by the patience of God who gives people the opportunity to know his grace and his mercy and his truth through Jesus Christ. This is what Amos was doing, giving people an opportunity to respond to God's grace. And we can be reminded that as our upward expression for love and our worship for him grows, so too, right, can our outward expression of love as his witnesses be a demonstration of God's truth and his word. And we can do this indeed to people here. And as uh, Aaron gets ready to uh, lead us in communion, and because of the sometimes the weightiness of um, these books, we're actually going to be, every week, we're going to spend time together in communion while we're in the series because we need to go back to grace. We need to go back to Jesus. And um, so every week, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's meal together. Jesus said this, my command is this, 
uh, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. And so, friends, as we prepare ourselves to remember how Jesus laid down his life for us, let's just consider our call to speak and to do the words of Christ. He's chosen us to do this. He's equipped us. He's encouraged us. He's given us everything that we need. And he's asked us to emulate his example, to demonstrate this love in practical ways, to even to lay down our lives to the, for those around us. Let's uh, receive the Lord's Supper together.